Hey guys, it's JM here at Disciple Dojo. And recently I was invited to speak down at a church in Georgia, Gordon's Chapel United Methodist Church. The pastor there, Andy Hargrove, is a good friend of mine. We go way back to his freshman year in college. So we've known each other for a long time. His wife has been a huge help. Christine has done great helping us get Disciple Dojo website stuff taken care of over the years because I am technologically inept. And so they're just a great family. Their kids are beautiful. And uh, he asked me to come speak. I was like, yeah, let's do it. It was for a revival week. So a revival service, typically churches would do once a year. And if you've ever heard of revival services, usually they're, they, they get people fired up. They're, they're meant to be kind of preaching weeks where every night there's a pastor who's trying to, to stir people up, whose faith may have grown dim over the years. So revivals are typically meant to be like, you know, this re-energizing experience. And those of you that know me know I'm not much of a preacher. Um, I, I don't do a lot of sermons. I, I teach, I explain, but I would not consider myself a preacher. So I told him that I was honest. I said, hey, I, you know, I can teach, but I'm not that great at preaching. He said, no, come and teach. That would be great. So I was excited then in that case. Went down there. We did four sessions once each night. There was a, a potluck, old school country church potluck before each session. And the food was amazing. I'm stuffed in all of these videos. If I look a little chunky around the midsection, it's because Georgia folks know how to cook. But I wanted to share these here on the Disciple Dojo channel because I think the message is important. It's the heart of what we do. So here's the message from the first evening of this revival service series. Now the audio is gonna be different because obviously it was recorded live. We're not in a studio with a nice fancy mic and sound set up. Just bear with me on the audio. It's a little bit echoey at times, but I think the content is worth sharing and hopefully you'll get something from it. Our guest speaker this evening is James Michael Smith. He is a Bible teacher, author, and artist, a Brazilian jiu-jitsu black belt, leads Bible studies on Christian thought and theology in churches and ministries throughout the country and throughout the world. Uh, he's the leader of Refugee Jitsu, an outreach to low-income kids and refugee and immigrant kids in Charlotte, North Carolina. Uh, you can see his uh, website in the weekly bulletin. Uh, I'm really excited to have him here with us. He also makes these uh, wonderful YouTube videos using superhero characters. I won't give it all the way to explain theology. So that's a lot of fun. Make sure you check that out. Uh, we had a little bit of technology issues. I'm going to take all responsibility for any technology snafus that happen tonight. Maybe not tomorrow, but tonight. Uh, just so you know. Uh, James Michael was my first Bible study teacher at the University of Georgia. Yeah, he was. How about that? So that was pretty fun. We were in a small group Bible study when I was a freshman, and uh, he was not. Just pointing that out. Um, and so I'm really excited to have him with us. Uh, he's going he's gonna to bring a, a series of messages over the next couple of nights that I think will uh, be uh, heartwarming uh, and, and soul-enlivening uh, over these next four nights of revival. So, James Michael, we are pleased to have you and welcome you gladly. Okay, you tell me. Up here or is it better down here? This, this is better, right? This feels a little more. That's too much social distancing. We want to be responsible, but uh, not over the top. I'm going to just set this right here. Um, yeah, so I, I've known Andy for, I was 20 years. When did you start college? Was, yeah, so over 20 years. He used to have really long hair. Have you guys ever seen pictures when I first met him? Yeah, he, had, he was a long hair hippie. No, um, yeah, it was a long time ago for both of us. I have way less hair now. I used to have longer hair. But, um, yeah, we were at Campus Ministry together at the Wesley Foundation, and um, it's really cool to see how everybody spread out over the years and what everybody's been doing. And so he's pastoring here uh, with you, and you're blessed to have him and his wife. Um, I it was a preacher's kid as well. So I grew up in churches like this in the South Georgia Conference and the, the God's Conference. This is the North Georgia. No, no, it's all good. We're all the same. We're all one family. Um, the scenery and the mountains and everything up here are a little bit nicer. We just had flat and sand gnats. 
but it's good to be here. I'm glad to be here. What I do, my my ministry, I teach, it's called Disciple Dojo. And uh, a dojo, if you don't know, so I am a martial artist. I do teach jujitsu and self-defense and, and uh, have been doing that all my life. But a dojo is where you go to train in the martial arts. And so you go to a dojo, you learn from a sensei, that's your instructor, and you go with the idea that when I show up to my jujitsu class, either if I'm teaching or if I'm just training in, as a student, when I show up, I know that I am about to get my butt kicked, but in a good way. I'm about to get put through the ringer by some of my closest friends. I tell people my closest friends regularly try to choke me and bend my arms in directions God didn't intend them to bend and to, to just make my life a nightmare for that hour that we're training together. But the purpose is for us to make each other better. You know, we don't go easy on each other, but we also don't injure each other because we want to be better and improve. And that philosophy has carried over into my Bible teaching because I believe that that's how we grow in, in many areas of life, but particularly theologically and, and in the area of discipleship. We have people pushing us. We have people pressing us. In discipleship, we have things like accountability, somebody that knows you really well that you've given permission to say, hey, is that really the best decision you should be making right now? And, and helps you self-reflect on things. Or in theology, you know, some of the best theology in the history of the church has come from Christians sitting down with a Bible passage saying, well, I think this means this, and somebody else saying, no, I think it means this, and really arguing it out. I mean, that's how the creeds, we, we said the Apostles' Creed, that's how the creeds were formed, by, by people gathering together and really saying, this is what the essence of our faith is. And others saying, yeah, but what about this part? And then what about this part? And then getting together, conferencing, having these ecumenical councils and coming up with these statements that for 2,000 years Christians have been able to repeat. Well, that's all come through this, this process of, of iron sharpening iron, of making each other better. And so that's where the ministry that I had, Disciple Dojo, that's where our name comes from, is, is in, in biblical studies we need people who push us. Who say things like, oh, you, you, this, this verse is actually saying something a little bit deeper than you may have thought. And giving us new ways to see stuff. And that's what I want to do for the time that I'm here with you guys for these couple of sessions is I want to push you a little bit. But from a place of we're on the same team. We are followers of Jesus. We believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, life everlasting. These are all things that we agree on. But let's step back and let's allow ourselves to be challenged. And let's allow ourselves to be challenged starting tonight with the Bible itself. This is when Andy asked me to come uh, he said, would you like to preach revival? I said, well, I'm, I'm not a preacher. I'm a teacher. My dad's a preacher. He's a preacher. I'm a teacher. And preaching and teaching, they have a lot of overlap, but they're not entirely the same thing. Because teaching is more of this is the content, and preaching is more of now this is what you do with that content. And a good preacher can teach, and a good teacher should be able to preach, but they are two different skill sets, or at least they are divergent skill sets sometimes. And my skill set is more of the teaching. However, I'm glad that he uh, he said, yeah, well, come teach. That's that's what we want and it's what we need. And, and I agree, because the Bible does say Jesus himself gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, some to be pastors. And then that last one, fifth one, teachers. And if you were asked me, I was on staff at a church, Methodist Church in Charlotte for years. I was the pastor of discipleship. One of the biggest needs that I've seen in churches is teaching. Because you can, you can fire people up with a good 10-minute sermon, 20-minute sermon, you know, say all the right things, get the right cadence, put, put a hallelujah in there when you need to, uh, use the right buzzwords, and you can get people excited. And sometimes people think that that's what revival is. But that's not what revival is. Revival is not getting people excited. That's what we called that back when we were in college. Every week was exciting. Our campus ministry, there was people singing and shouting and jumping and tongues and prophecy and all this stuff. And it was really exciting. But that's not revival. Revival is when people are changed. Like long-term change. 
You can have revival services where people leave saying, that was some good preaching. That was some good preaching. But what I want, this revival service, series of services, I would rather you leave saying, I didn't know that. And now I know that. And that changes how I look at the world. Because that gives long-term change. My, one of my favorite parables Jesus told was the parable of the different types of soils and how the gospel, the seed, was spread, was cast. And, you know, that's where we get the term broadcasting from, was originally from people casting seed just wherever. And, and wherever it landed, hopefully it would grow if the soil was good. And that later became what the TV stations used when they talked about broadcasting, is just sending, an, you know, sending the message out over the airwaves and hoping that it finds the viewers. Well, that's what farmers would do in the ancient world. They would till the ground, they'd remove the rocks, they'd get the soil ready, and then they would just sling the seed wherever instead of planting it in the nice, neat little cornrows that we're used to. Well, Jesus talks about the Gospels like that seed, and, and, and the seed that lands on different soils is going to have different effects. And one of the saddest things to me is, and I've seen it, I've seen it with friends, is people who get so excited about the gospel. They get so excited about faith. They, they receive the word immediately with gladness, but there's no depth. And, and so, like Jesus talks about in that parable, the seed sprouts up real quick. But as soon as the sun comes out, as soon as the conditions aren't just right, the plant withers and dies. And I have seen that time and time again with people in the church getting excited, going to a service, hearing a preacher, watching Billy Graham, whoever else gets them really excited. They give their life to the Lord. They're, they're on fire for Jesus. You can't shut them up about the gospel for about six months, maybe a year. But then eventually life comes back and there's no depth. They don't have a foundation or their foundation was entirely based on their feelings. And once those feelings pass, once the goosebumps settle down, then what is there? What is there to get them through? And so I think that for there to be revival in, in, in throughout history, when there have been revivals, one of the things that's happened in revivals, one of, not the only, but one of the things has been among the people who are experiencing revival, there's been a renewed hunger for scripture. There's been a renewed hunger for this thing called the Bible. That's not the only mark of revival, but, but it's one of them. And I think as a Bible teacher, without that, the soil just stays shallow. If we aren't grounded and rooted in Scripture, then we are ultimately left to whoever the preacher of the moment, the, the, the Christian celebrity of the moment, the author that we read, who we like at that moment. That's what we're left with instead of building our house on the rock. Instead of having scripture that we can pull from, that can guide us, that can show us where we are in life, who we are in life, what life is all about. Now, there's no way that we could, in, even in a few sessions, even in a week of sessions, there's no way that we could do a whole course on that. So rather, what I want to do with our time together is I just want to acknowledge a couple of things, point out a few things tonight, tomorrow night, night after, and then the last night. And then when I leave, hopefully you have at least one or two things kicking around in your head that are like, I never knew that. Or I've never thought of that that way. And then, like, I kind of stir things up and then I get to go home and leave him to clean up the mess. So that's the plan. But hopefully there won't be a mess. So the last letter that Peter wrote before he died. And the last thing he said in the last letter that he wrote. Okay, so this is Peter, the rock. If you're Catholic, the first pope, but nobody in here is Catholic, I'm guessing. Peter, regardless of what we think about the papacy, Peter was Peter, one of the inner three. And so if anyone has something important to say about Jesus, it's probably Peter. We can all agree on that, hopefully. I mean, Jesus is best friend. This is what he ends his, his letter that he's writing. He says something in this little address that he's giving. He says this kind of throwaway statement. 
he says, therefore, beloved, while you're waiting for these things, strive to be found by him at peace without spot or blemish. Now we'll talk about mm, Wednesday night, what the, these things that they're waiting for are, because that's really important, but, but we're not getting there tonight. I want to focus on the next part. Verse 15, regard the patience of our Lord as salvation. So also our beloved brother Paul wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, speaking of this as he does in all his letters. Here's the part I want to focus in on. There are some things in them, Paul's letters, that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. This is what he says. There are some things that Paul's written. Paul's written what I'm telling you he's also written about too in his letters. And there are some things that are hard to understand and the ignorant and the unstable people twist them to their own destruction, as they do the other scriptures. People misusing the Bible is nothing new. People twisting scripture is nothing new. And he goes on to say, You therefore, beloved, since you're forewarned, beware that you are not carried away with the error of lawless or lawless people and lose your own stability. So he's warning. This is one of the final things that Peter wrote. He wrote two letters. They're very short, but they're near the end of his life. And he's warning people. And he's saying, hey, there's stuff in Scripture that's hard to understand. Paul's written to you about this stuff. And, and, and people will twist his writings and they twist the other Scriptures to their own destruction. And so I don't want you to do that because I don't want you to be carried away with the error of this lawlessness and lose your own stability. Instead, grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. So his final warning is, listen, people are going to distort scripture. They've been doing it for a long time. They'll keep doing it. I don't want you to be carried away and lose your stability. That implies that our stability, in part, comes from having a, an understanding of the orthodox biblical faith. And not a twisted, lawless version that people will be peddling throughout our lives. That they've been doing for the past 2,000 years. This is what he's saying. This is what he's telling. What Peter is telling the people. And the reason that I zero in. This is a, why would you teach this passage? Why would you teach this passage at a revival? But I like this passage. Because it acknowledges something. That many. Well probably all of us have thought. But the good church people among us. Have not wanted to say out loud. And that is that the Bible is hard to understand. That's the number one reason. That people do not absorb scripture the way that is possible, the way that maybe prior generations have, if you ask people today, because it's hard to understand. And we need to be honest about what the Bible is. That's what it is at the end of the day. It's a collection of ancient documents inspired by God, but that are sometimes hard to understand. And the reason that I share this passage at the beginning of any teaching I do on Bible interpretation is because this is Peter admitting it. So if Peter, who had a 40-day private Bible study session with Jesus and the other disciples after Jesus rose from the dead, if Peter, who saw Jesus transfigured on the Mount of Transfiguration, he saw Moses and Elijah, just let that sink in for a minute, Peter saw all this stuff, and even he can say, and there are some things that are hard to understand about Scripture. So if Peter feels that way, give yourself some slack when you come to some passages or some things in Scripture that make you scratch your head. It's okay. God never intended everybody individually to understand all of Scripture. That's why it is given to us corporately, communally. That's why we study Scripture in small groups or in larger Sunday school classes or with other people, because guess what? Guess what every cult that has ever been started has in common? Every single cult in the history of the world has, the one thing it has in common is that it began with one person 
finding a new reading in a scripture and then convincing other people that they were right and that all the other Christians were wrong. That's how cults start. And I know you don't want to be a cult. And thankfully, you have leadership here that is giving you sound teaching. But what Peter is saying is, hey, be, be ready because that stuff's going to happen. There are going to be people. There are going to be people who are going to twist and distort Scripture. So we, as followers of Jesus, part of the thing that entails revival is our ability to read the Word of God and to understand it. That's something that will change entire communities, is actual encounter with Scripture. Yes, singing's great. Music is great. Corporate worship's great. Saying creeds together is great. Taking communion is great. Those things are all great and needed and essential. But understanding Scripture transforms us in a way that none of those things on their own can do. And it begins by acknowledging, hey, this is hard. So this thing we call the Bible, I'll, if I do this, that's telling the person in the back to scroll up. Tomorrow it may be a little different. But this thing we call the Bible, what is it? What is it? That's what we're going to talk about for the rest of the time tonight is I want to dispel some myths. Um, let me show you the picture. The next picture that should be, now you have to be on the spot with the slides in the back because I'm going to go quick. I only have a few minutes to share this. So this is a picture of a diamond mine. This is the Akati diamond mine in the Canadian Arctic. Now those little tiny, I, I can move around, so I'll show you these little things right here. Those are buildings. That's a town or a little colony. That's how big this is. Okay? This thing is massive. This is in the Canadian Arctic, like way up north. This is a multi-billion dollar operation. They had to not only get all the equipment up there, but then they had to dig it all out. And this is years and years worth of mining, all to find these little lumps of crystalline rock that are really, really, really hard and that people like to wear on their fingers or around their necks. This is a diamond mine. And you imagine if somebody, if you work for this company, they say, hey, we got a promotion for you. We're moving you. Where? The Canadian Arctic. Oh, boy. Uh, why? Well, you're going to dig for diamonds. That is a massive responsibility. And it's not easy. It's not easy. But yet this company and companies like it go to such lengths to do this, to dig down into the ground, to get in hopes that they may find these little shiny rocks, basically, minerals. Well, why do they do that? Why spend all that time? Are diamonds needed? No. no. I mean, if you have a diamond engagement ring, I, I'm sure it's beautiful, but you could get married without one. And it is possible to live without diamonds. So they are not necessary. But are they valued? Absolutely. I mean, think about if you lost your ring. <laughs> you would go crazy. You'd move heaven and earth to get it back. For the meaning that it has and for the value that it has, they are valuable. So these companies say it is worth it to take all that stuff up to the Arctic to make this whole little town to dig this giant. I mean, that was dug truckload by truckload out of the earth in hopes of finding this stuff. It's worth it. Well, one of my favorite quotes about the Bible is this quote by E.W. Bullinger. He wrote this in 1899 at the beginning of his book about the Bible, figures of speech used in the Bible. And he says, the word of God may in one respect be compared to the earth. Now listen to what he says. All things necessary to life and sustenance may be obtained just by scratching the surface of the earth. But there are treasures of beauty and wealth to be obtained by digging deeper into it. And so it is with the Bible. All things necessary to life and godliness lie upon its surface for the humblest saint. But beneath that surface are great spoils, which are found only by those who seek after them as for hid treasure. This is what he's saying. You don't need diamonds or gold or even this brown sludgy stuff that they pull up from the ocean that we turn into gasoline to run our cars. The humans have lived without those things. However, why do companies spend billions and billions and billions of dollars? Because they know that if they find those things and are able to get those things, those things are 
incredibly valuable. And so they're willing to put in the work. Well, what Bullinger's saying is that's how it is with Scripture. Do you need to be a Bible scholar to understand, to have a relationship with Jesus? No. The humblest saint can look at a page of Scripture, read John 3.16, be convicted by the Holy Spirit, repent of their sins, cry out to God, and they will be as saved and as sanctified as the most wise biblical scholar who has ever lived. It's not about sanctification. But those who dig into Scripture, the deeper we dig, the more treasure we find. And the more our life is shaped by what we find in its pages. And so that's the image of what the Bible is. It's like this vast trove of treasure. And most people do very little digging in there. And when we see it for what it is, it changes everything. But the problem is, and you can just keep scrolling because I'm going to talk through all these slides. The problem is that instead of seeing scripture like the surface of the earth, and that if we dig in it, we can find stuff, what we are confronted with is this enigma. Scripture was written on three different continents. Three different continents is, is comprise scripture's worldview, Asia, Africa, and Europe. And to make it more hard to decipher, it's in three different languages. The Old Testament is written in this ancient language of Hebrew. And then after that, keep, you can scroll a little faster. Um, these would be clicks if this was PowerPoint. After that is Aramaic was the language of the ancient world. So there's parts like Daniel and other books of the Bible that have some Aramaic. And then by the time of Jesus in the New Testament, the New Testament is written in Greek, which had become the language of the ancient world. So you've got a book that's written by over 40 different authors. You can pause on the puzzle slide. Yep, 40 different authors, three different continents, in three different languages, 66 books. This is one thing at our church, every week the, the congregation repeats out loud, the Bible is not a book, it's a library. The Bible is not a book, it's a library. And it's a library that spans 1,500 years in its composition. So imagine, what's the year? 2021. So imagine 1,500 years ago. What would that would be? Any math majors in the house? What would 1,500 years ago be? No math majors here, apparently. Okay. Any elementary school math graduates? 1,500 years ago was 521, right? That's right. Uh, I was an art major, so I'm useless with math. But imagine the year 521. Imagine that's the year, and somebody starts writing a book in South America. And then other parts of that book or collection of books get written in Australia. And then imagine the final part of that collection of books gets finished yesterday. Yesterday. From 521 AD until yesterday. Three different continents. 40 different authors, at least 66 books. The Bible is, for most people, this is what it is. It's a jumble of puzzle pieces. That's what the Bible is. Now, who in here does jigsaw puzzles? There's got to be, there's always at least one or two people. I, I, we do them on family vacations. Jigsaw puzzles are both fun and maddening. If you want to do a jigsaw puzzle, what's the first thing you do? you get the outside pieces. Have you ever seen somebody try to do a jigsaw puzzle by picking up one piece and looking at it and then picking up a random other piece and trying to fit it on each side and it doesn't fit, what do they do? Throw that piece away and pick up another piece and they try to fit it. Eventually, they might build the puzzle. It'd take a long time. They might get there. But how frustrating would that be? Imagine this. Let's say you gift me like, oh, thank you for coming to speak. We got you this gift. It's a 5,000-piece jigsaw puzzle. First, don't ever do that. That's a terrible gift for a speaker. Uh, but imagine you did that, and I'm being polite and said, oh, thank you. That's wonderful. Imagine if I took this puzzle home, and I was like, I'm going to put this puzzle together that the lovely people from Gordon Shopping and I Church gave me. And I pull out a piece, and I just look at that piece. 
And imagine me going, this is such a beautiful piece. And then I even get excited. Maybe I show the piece to somebody else. Hey, guys, look at this piece. Look at this, what the church gave me. And I take it and I put it in my pocket. And, and at lunch, I pull it out and I just meditate on that piece, right? Put it back in my pocket, go throughout my day. When I come across something, a really hard situation, oh, I need strength. And I pull the piece out and I look at it. Oh, it makes me feel better. Put it back in. And then what I do, I get home at night. I take the piece out of my pocket. Thank you for this piece. Put it back in the box. And then the next morning, I get another piece. And I do the same thing. Now, one, that would be weird behavior. But two, would I ever, would I ever have an understanding of what the image of that puzzle is? No. I would know the pieces. I may even have my favorite pieces. I may even have a piece every day that I pull out and another piece that I like on the weekends. But this is my piece for the day. That's what people do with Bible study. That's what people do with their daily Bible verse calendars, where they just a random verse, no context, no connection whatsoever. This is my memory verse for the day. And then the next day, they pull out another verse. This is my memory verse. Now, there's nothing wrong with doing that. You're not a sinner if you have a daily Bible verse calendar. I'm not saying that. What I'm saying is that's not Bible study. That's not transformative understanding. That is not going to prevent what Peter was warning his audience against. Bible study is putting the pieces together. Putting the puzzle together. That is transformative. Because then we see the image that the creator of the puzzle wants us to see and enjoy. And so what we're going to end with tonight is I'm going to give the corner pieces of the Bible. Because there's really, if you can, instead of, it's not a perfect analogy because there would be four corner pieces. I'm going to give you five. So it's a pentagonal puzzle if you need to press it for literalism. But we're going to give the biblical story. And if you can get these puzzle pieces, then wherever you go in the Bible, you at least know somewhat where you are. And think of, when you put a jigsaw puzzle together, think about it. If I have blue all along the top and down one corner, and then I have green all along this corner, and then maybe there's a bright red something on this corner, okay, that's the frame. When I come to a blue piece, a green piece, a red piece, I probably know at least the general area where that piece should fit, right? That's what building a frame does. Well, with the Bible, it's the same thing. If we have a general understanding of the movements of Scripture as a whole, then we begin to understand the grand narrative, the big picture. And the Bible stops becoming random scattered memory verses, or even worse, a list of rules that we have to keep. And it starts becoming a masterpiece that gives our life meaning in the cosmic grand sense of everything. And so here are the five movements of the biblical story. The first one is the introduction. Every good story has an introduction. And so the introduction in the Bible is the creation and the fall. It tells us who God is, that he made everything, and how the world got to be in the condition that it's in. Because everywhere you go, no matter who you talk to, every single person on this earth knows that things now are not the way that they're supposed to be. Everybody knows that. And the beginning of the Bible tells us why that's the case. And so the introduction is the creation and then how things got so messed up. And that's everything in Genesis chapter 1 through Genesis chapter 11. And then in Genesis chapter 12, something happens. We meet an individual. And that moves us into the second part of the biblical story, the covenant with Israel. God calls this person out and he makes a promise and he says, through you, I'm going to do a bunch of stuff that's going to ultimately put this whole thing back on track. And that person becomes the founding of what becomes the people of Israel. And that goes off the rails. But the God makes promises. I'm still going to put it back on track. And then eventually after that, we come to the new covenant. Because the old covenant with Israel went, went wrong. Well, tomorrow we'll look at that story in more detail. But it went wrong. 
And so God told the people, okay, I'm still going to do this original thing that I promised, which we'll look at tomorrow. There's your teaser. Come back. I'm going to do this thing, but I'm going to do it in a different way. And, and the purpose is going to be the same, but it's going to look a lot different. And so he promises them this new covenant. Well, then Jesus comes on the scene and he inaugurates this new covenant. And we get that in the books of Matthew all the way through Acts chapter 1. And then in Acts chapter 2, a corner is turned and we enter into the end times or the church age, as some people call it. And Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit is poured out, and the people all along had known through Scripture that when God acts in those end times, those last days, He's going to pour out His Spirit on all flesh. Well, that's what happens in Acts chapter 2. And that continues to happen as the people take the gospel into the world, as the kingdom of God pushes back the kingdom of darkness, as the mustard seed grows into one of the largest trees in the all of creation, all those images Jesus used to talk about what this kingdom of God was going to be. And it goes all the way to the end of the Bible, of the book of Revelation chapter 20. So, hey, guess what? If somebody asks you, well, this COVID stuff, I don't know, stuff in the Middle East is getting out of hand. Are we in the end times? Well, you can confidently say, yes, we are. And it doesn't have anything to do with what's going on in the Middle East. It doesn't have anything to do with COVID viruses. It doesn't have anything to do with vaccines or credit card chips or barcodes being tattooed on people's faces or any of the other stuff that people have sensationalized all throughout church history. Why? Because according to the Bible, the end times began when the Holy Spirit was given, when the Holy Spirit was poured out, and the end times will end when Jesus returns. And so, we don't have time, I'm not going to read this quote, um, but that's the age that we're in right now. Then the end of the Bible, the last part, the final piece of the puzzle, is the ending, new creation. That's where everything's headed. Revelation 21, 22 is, is an image of the new creations. See, God went to all this trouble to create this world and to create it good. And then this world and the free agents within this world that he created rebelled and started spiritually. And then it passed on to humanity in the garden. And that rebellion messed up this creation in some way, shape, or form, in many ways, shapes, and forms. And so God is not in the business of saying, let's scrap it and just beam all the good people up to heaven forever. No, he created a bodily creation. And so he's going to redeem a bodily creation. And Jesus is the first fruits of that. So that's where everything is headed, not to floating off on a cloud forever. When I was a little kid, I'd hear Sunday school teachers tell me about heaven. I could not imagine anything more boring than the images of heaven I learned in Sunday school. Not all the Sunday school classes, but most of them. The images of heaven were the most boring thing that I could ever imagine. Who would want that? Harps and clouds, one, I don't like harp music. I think it's creepy. Two, I don't really sing that well, and I don't enjoy it very much. Some people do, and I love listening to good singing, but it's just not my thing. I, I'm, I'm, other ways I connect better. So the idea of sitting on a cloud with a harp singing forever, that is hell for me. That's not heaven. And I bet for most of you, especially guys in here, I bet you think the same thing. You can't imagine something that would be, oh, it's an eternal worship service. Worship services can be pretty boring if we're honest with ourselves. That's not the goal. That's not where everything's headed. That's not the story. The story is everything that's wrong about creation is going to be made right. And everything that's good about creation is going to be made better. And everything that's bad about creation is going to be gone. That is what heaven is about in Scripture. And that's where everything ends. And, and John can't even, in, we'll look at Revelation, our, our last session together, because I really love teaching on that book. Um, but John can't even wrap his mind around some of the things that he's seeing. And so he can only put forth these word images that convey something like almost close to the reality that's being conveyed. Because it's beyond words. This is the Bible story.
this is the story of the Bible. And 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 we're 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 gonna close it with I'm I'm gonna just fly through these next few slides just because when I teach this, usually it's in two hour sessions with like a bathroom break in between. So you're just getting the condensed version. Pause this one right here, this slide. This is an image. It's available online. You can see it in the course that I teach on my website, but I'm going to just show you what this is real quick. This, this guy named Chris Harrison, you can go to his website, chrisharrison.net. He laid out every chapter of the Bible side by side on a line here. So see this really long one right here? This is Psalm 119. It's the longest chapter in the Bible. All the rest of these are all the chapters of the Bible. Every time a part of Scripture references, quotes, or alludes to another part of Scripture, the program that he wrote, the computer program, drew a line. So there are over 60,000 of these lines connecting Scripture. Every chapter of the Bible depends on knowing the rest of the story. It's like this giant Wikipedia page where every word is hyperlinked. Everything you click on will take you to another thing about that. It's this interconnected whole. But remember, it is 1,500 years of 40 different authors writing 66 different books in three different languages on three different continents. You would expect it to be a mess. But instead, this is, to me, one of the most beautiful images of the overall cohesiveness of the Bible. That if you know the beginning, that's important because it's going to come up at the end. And if you know the th stuff that came before, Jesus is going to reference that stuff. And the more you read the Old Testament, the more the New Testament jumps off the page at you. And the more you read the New Testament, then when you go back and read the Old Testament again, you're like, wait a minute, I know how this is going to go. It just opens up this whole new world in terms of Bible studying. And so that's what we have. It's inspired. And we, we have a whole session online where we talk about this. You can keep scrolling. The Bible is God's inspired word. So what that means is this is not like any other collection of books where it's just inspiring, even though you may hear some Christians, even though you may hear some Methodists say that the Bible is just God, man's words about God. No, 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 no. Those are severely misguided people. Scripture is God-breathed, inspired. Inspired literally means breathed into. Theopneustos is the Greek word that Paul used. The, the Bible, all scripture is inspired by God. Its origin is of God. So this is the way when we're studying scripture, this is the way we approach it. Is God inspired a human author? Moses, Paul, Matthew, whoever. That human author wrote, compiled, edited, dictated, in some way created an original document. That original document had an original audience. So when Paul wrote to the Philippians, he was not writing to James Michael Smith. He was writing to the church at Philippi. So if I want to know the message that God wants to speak to me, I have to know what Paul wrote to the Philippians in their situation. And only then, once I understand that, then I can ask, what does this mean to me? See, a lot of times, this is what people do. Whereas there's a Bible in every pew here, so let me just grab one. This is how many people study the Bible. Dear Lord, I want to hear from you. I need guidance on which job to take or who to marry or which puppy to buy or whatever. I need guidance from you, God. Speak to me, Holy Spirit. And then they read it. Flee from Babylon and go out. To the land of the Chaldeans and be like male goats leading the flock. All right, Jeremiah 50, verse 8. I'm going to be a goat herder. The Holy Spirit has spoken. That's not Bible study. That's not what God has intended this to happen. That's not how He has intended this to work. But that's what we do. Why? Because we don't want to study the Bible. We want a holy fortune cookie, we want a Bible magic eight ball, right? Shake it up, Lord, speak to me. 
And then we invent some spiritual response that, I mean, can, listen, can God speak to somebody through that method if they don't know any better and they sincerely ask of him and they, that's all they know to do? Yes. He spoke through a donkey. He can speak through that. But is that the way God intends his maturing disciples to communicate and to learn from him? No, it is not. Because he inspired original authors to write these original documents to original audiences so that you and I would be able to glean from that, from writing to their situation, what the same spirit wants us to get from that message in our situation. And for the next night or two, we're going to look at how that works in practicality. But we'll end with this image. I don't. I haven't even checked time, so I'm just get a big hook and pull me off stage when it's time. But we'll end with this image. This is a picture. These their faces are blurred out. It's not the focus on the uh, overhead. They are these these people. They have these big plastic hot air balloons, and there's hundreds of them. And they're gathered and they're praying. What's going to happen is in a minute, they're going to release these things by the hundreds. Well, these are Chinese Christians on the border of North Korea. And on those balloons, there we go. On those balloons is scripture written in Korean. Tiny, you can keep scrolling. I took this next picture at the Bible Museum in, in Washington, D.C. Keep, keep scrolling, next one. And you can barely see it, but, but scripture in Korean written on these balloons. That's a close-up of one that I took. They float these over the border into North Korea. You can leave it right there. You can, you can leave it right there. They float these over the border by the hundreds into Korea in hopes that Christians in North Korea will find them in the woods and will be able to have scripture in their language. Why? Because the Bible is not allowed in North Korea. At least as of a few years ago, it wasn't. Hopefully that may be changing. But And it's not the only place in the world where this is the case, but it is one of the places. For so long, just owning a Bible in many parts of the world could get you killed. The next picture is an image of somebody. This is William Tyndall. William Tyndall dared the unspeakable crime of translating the Bible into English so that people could read it. And because of that, he was tied to a pole and strangled to death. And then they took his body and burned it and scattered the ashes. The church did that, by the way. His crime, translating the Bible into the language that he and his fellow English people could read. Next slide. This is a picture of that Bible, Tyndall's New Testament. The cool thing is that became one of the main texts that was the basis of what became the King James Bible about 100 years later. So his legacy lived on. And God's Word has always done that. Whenever people have tried to stop it, it has been unstoppable, but people have suffered in the process greatly. Next slide is a picture I took. Again, this is at the Bible Museum. I had a lot more hair in this picture. This is what I look like with hair, by the way. Um, the next, th this, this is a room. Oh, oh, yep, there we go. This is a room in the Bible Museum in Washington, D.C. All those books on the wall, each of those books are languages that the Bible has been translated into. Next slide is the other side of the room, and every one of those books, which are in yellow, are the languages in the world that it still needs to be translated into. That's the work that still needs to be happening. So, the reason that I bring this up and show the picture of the, the scripture balloons being floated into North Korea is because there, there are probably over a hundred Bibles in this room. If you have a smartphone, you have a free Bible app on your phone that has every translation you could imagine, hundreds of translations in different languages. That We can't understand how great a treasure that we have until we realize what people who don't have that go through to get their Bibles. 
See, I just literally pull my phone out, tap a button, and a Bible will be sent to me from Amazon to my mailbox in any color I want. I can even get like a really cool cover to it. Those people have to go out in the woods and hope that they find an orange balloon, take it back home, hope that it's not the page that they may already have, and hope that the authorities don't find it because they and their entire family will be killed. Huge difference. And yet, how much time do we actually spend studying, absorbing these, this treasure that we have? Because they memorize it. Christians in parts of the world where the Bible is not allowed, they have to store it in here and in here. I say all that not to heap on guilt, okay? But to heap on a little motivation of what we have in our palms of our hand. What we take for granted. So that if you saw in the brochure or, or, or online or something, oh, night teaching for a revival is coming up. There's going to be three nights of Bible teaching. Well, maybe. I may think about it. I want you to realize what we are doing these next couple of nights together. And realize the treasure that we have. That, that Think of that image of the diamond mine. Think of people spending billions of dollars to dig into the earth to get these little lumps of mineral. And that's nothing compared to what God's given us in Scripture. And it's, you don't even have to dig. You have to read, you have to turn pages, you have to think. But no shovels involved, hopefully. So that's what we're going to do these next few nights together, is we're going to spend some time digging. Tomorrow night, I believe we're going to look at the Old Testament, the covenant with Israel, the part of the Bible nobody reads anymore. And I'm going to show you as an Old Testament teacher why I think that is a huge mistake. And then after that, we're going to look at a new look at the New Testament. And then the final night together, we're going to say, where's this all headed again? We're going to look at Revelation, the most misunderstood book in the Bible, hands down. And we're going to take a look at that as well. And hopefully in this time together, if nothing else, you'll at least leave thinking there's more treasure in there and I need to start digging it out. That's the hope. Because for me, that will be a successful revival. If you jump in and hollering and shouting, that's great. I don't mind it. I mean, this is Methodist church. Most Methodists don't do that. Uh, but some of them do. John Wesley certainly did in his crowd. And so we're all for it. And it's great. But better than that is if you leave with a renewed commitment to dig into God's word on a regular basis, that'll change your world. That'll change this community. And that will, that, that's revival. That's what my goal is for you.